Good evening. Turn to the person next to you or around you, behind you, and tell them who your favorite childhood hero was when you were growing up, as a kid. So I couldn't hear any of that, so could you just shout it out? Yeah, that's, that's super helpful. When I was a kid growing up, at Christmas time, when I was seven years of age, my father brought home a comic book. And it had Batman on the front of it. With a long Santa Claus beard. And it was a... It was a Batman Christmas comic book. And I was ruined the rest of my life. <laughs> two months ago, after two years of searching, I tracked down that comic book and I found it on eBay and it's now in my house forever. <laughs> when I was a kid growing up, my heroes were the TV kind or the comic book kind, there was a show when I was a kid called Super Friends. You recognize any of them? That, so that's not really Gal Gadot there, but it is Wonder Woman. My hero was this cowboy named Roy Rogers. Right? And then, especially when I hit a, about 15, Charlie's Angels. But not these Charlie's Angels, the real Charlie's Angels. The kind of heroes that rise to the occasion when they find themselves in these impossible, life-threatening situations like William Wallace and Braveheart paints his face. They say, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to go pick a fight. Or like Harrison Ford in the movie Air Force One, get off my plane. We love people of action and courage like Barney Fife. <laughs> great courage, great action. The author Robert Blood wrote this. Deep within, we imagine ourselves a mixture of Patrick Henry, Davy Crockett, John Wayne, and the prophet Daniel. But the truth of the matter is, we are more like Gulliver of old, tied down and immobilized by tiny strands of a thing called fear. We all admire, I think, not the Hollywood heroes, but real, everyday kind of heroes, like firemen who jump into the flames in the forest of California like Coast Guard sailors who rescue men and women on the high seas with the motto, we have to go out, but we do not have to come back. Like the National Guard who drop everyday jobs, leave their families, and go and defend our country in faraway places. We admire them because they are real people. They're regular people, just like you and I. Ordinary people who do something extraordinarily courageous and they inspire us because we hope 
that we could respond the same way if we found ourselves in similar circumstances. We read in Acts chapter 6 and 7 the story of the first martyr of the church that Jesus is building. The word martyr to us in our context conjures up certain pictures in our mind, like early Christians being torn apart by lions in the Roman Colosseum, or reformers like John Knox, John Knox and John Huss being burned at the stake, or of missionaries being killed by people that they want to reach with the gospel. But the basic meaning of the New Testament word, matoros, is this. It is simply a witness. And we see through the example of Stephen a beautiful and a forceful witness of the one Lord who is ultimately worth living for and, if need be, dying for. A lady by the name of Hiwu and her family have recently endured much. Would you look for a few moments and listen to our sister in Christ?
how can you and I build a heroic faith like Stephen the first martyr and Hiawu? Now you might be wondering, does Jesus want me to die for him? Yes. Yes, he does. Because a faith that you do not have to die for is also a faith that you don't have to live for. You see, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die for him if necessary, but more importantly, to live for him every day. A daily life of courageous faith. Choosing and putting him first in our lives. Because Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, you must take up your cross and follow me. And the cross was not a description of some kind of burden to bear. The cross was an instrument of death. Saul of Tarsus, who would later become known as the Apostle Paul, was participating in this public execution of Stephen. And Paul would later write, I am crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Stephen's story moves us to the edge of our seat for all of the reasons that modern-day stories of heroes move us to the edge of our seat. Because he wasn't Jesus. He wasn't even an apostle. He was just a regular guy, like you and I. And his story is recorded in several scenes in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Scene 1 begins in a courtroom. Now, I want you to think for a moment of the greatest courtroom dramas you have ever seen. To Killing Mockingbird, A Few Good Men, The Hurricane with Denzel Washington, anything Denzel, yeah. The Lincoln Lawyer, Matthew McConaughey. What you have in Acts chapter 7 is one of the greatest courtroom scenes in the history of the world. They drag this innocent guy who is full of wisdom and power and the Holy Spirit to face this rigged jury on trumped-up charges with bribed witnesses. He's falsely accused of blasphemy. And these accusations are what? They're eerily similar to the ones that were brought against Jesus. It's as if Jesus is actually back on trial in Jerusalem through the life of Stephen. This is the Supreme Court of the nation of Israel that Stephen is standing before. And the text reads, And the high priest said, Are these things so? Pause. At this moment, what is happening? Stephen's life is hanging in the balance. How he responds to that question from the high priest, the words that he chooses to let come out of his mouth are going to determine whether he lives or dies. And if you had been arrested for the crime of following Jesus, how would you respond? Very few of us may be called on to pay the ultimate price of death for being a follower of Jesus. But every day we are confronted with decisions that do determine our destinies. Heroic faith in Jesus is built one day at a time, one decision at a time, when we courageously choose to do the right thing for the right reason in that moment. When we say 
no to temptation and sin. When we choose to serve rather than being served. When we choose to live for Christ and die to self. In countless ways, every day, we have the opportunity to make decisions that most people will never see or know, but that is building a heroic faith that will be there when it really matters and when it really counts. When you care more for the applause of heaven than you do for the applause of men. When you joyfully let other people have the credit. When you give anonymously. When you are kind to an enemy. When you have the courage to boldly share your faith. When you choose to forgive someone who has deeply wounded you. When you have the courage to step out in faith and trust God with your future, your job, your finances, whatever it's going to be. This is how God develops a heroic faith over time in very personal, private ways, the process of making ordinary but Christ-honoring decisions. When Stephen was asked to take leadership responsibility in a little local church, he embraced it. And when he had the opportunity, he was a bold witness for Jesus. He took advantage of those opportunities to share what Jesus meant to him and what Jesus could do for others. What is now a long time ago, Lisa Beamer writes about the decisions her husband Todd Beamer made before he took his fatal flight on 9-11. At the age of 24, he wrote in his journal, His Life Goals, to be a strong Christian, to be disciplined, to be a father with integrity, to be able to build friendships, to love my wife, to strive to be like my father, to be respected even when I'm not around, to be compassionate to others. He led a couple small group with his wife. He taught a boys Sunday school class every week at church. He was just an ordinary Stephen kind of guy living a courageous life of heroic faith. And it prepared him for the greatest crisis of his life. Heroes do not set out to be heroes. They set out to make good choices and good decisions on a daily basis. And heroic faith is also developed by letting go of the familiar and the comfortable. Stephen is now doing things that he never dreamed of doing. He's preaching. He's healing people. The apostles were fishermen. Their family were fishermen. They would have been fishermen, but now Jesus has called them to go do something else. And these simple men and women are now energized with this new life purpose. They are given this tremendous boldness. And they're being called in front of the most powerful people in the entire city of Jerusalem. They're getting locked up. They're getting beaten. But they knew that they are doing what God had called them to do. They let go of the familiar. And what happened? Watch. Their courage went through the roof. Some time ago, an acquaintance of mine told me that he went through a McDonald's drive-thru every single night of the summer to get one of those vanilla cones that they serve at McDonald's drive throughs <laughs> Because it's vanilla, and it's cheap, and it's low-fat. He went through that drive-thru every night of the summer to get one. And he started thinking, you know, I'm 38. This pretty much describes my life right now. 
I'm predictable, I'm mundane, and I'm vanilla. So he said, you know what? He said, Ralph, I'm going to shake it up. I'm going to go to Baskin Robbins and get a waffle cone. You and I can busy our lives with maintaining the status quo, but following Jesus is not about settling for a routine, monotonous religious activity. It is not. Let me ask you, what is it that keeps you stuck in neutral a little bit in your life? What is it that keeps you comfortable? What is it that keeps you kind of bound to what is familiar? Because, listen, friends, Satan wants to use fear and discouragement to keep you tied down. He wants you to say, I can't do this. I could never go on a missions trip to Muscat or, or Cairo. That's, what, that's why God whispers to every one of our ears. Come on, come on, be bold, be strong, be courageous. I'm going to be with you. A century ago, a band of brave souls became known in the church worldwide as one-way missionaries. They purchased single tickets to the mission field without the return half. And instead of suitcases, they packed all of their belongings into coffins. And they sailed out of port, and they waved goodbye to everyone that they loved, knowing that they would most likely never return home again. A.W. Milne was one of those missionaries. He set sail for islands in the South Pacific, knowing full well that the headhunters who lived there had martyred every missionary before him. And Milne did not fear for his life because he, he had already died to himself. His coffin was packed for 35 years. He lived among that tribe, and he loved them. And when he died, those tribal members buried him in the middle of their village and inscribed this epitaph on his tombstone. When he came, there was no light, and when he left, there was no darkness. When did the church of Jesus ever start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things. When we start believing that there's any greater privilege than sacrifice, the complete surrender, the absolute surrender of your life to the cause of Jesus Christ in building his kingdom around the world is not radical, it's normal for a Christian. Near the end of chapter 7, Stephen powerfully is the Messiah, the one who was promised and prophesied about in the Old Testament. And he starts with Abraham. Why? Because Abraham is the start of God's people. He talks about the patriarchs and Joseph. He talks about Moses and the giving of the law. And he ends by talking about the temple. In essence, Stephen's defense in his sermon is Abraham pointed towards Jesus, Joseph pointed to Jesus, Moses pointed to Jesus, Jesus is the law fulfilled, the temple is not needed because Jesus is the temple. And so he turns the tables on his accusers and he indicts them. In verse 53, he says, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, you have not obeyed it. That it's not a very good thing to say when you are in trial for your life, to accuse the judges. But heroic faith rises when you respond to a call that is greater than your circumstances. Very recently, a young Syrian Christ Christian by the name of Jemina was speaking with an American pastor. 
And she said this, Pastor, my family and my friends have experienced much persecution in my country, but we have stayed in Syria for a reason. And she looked around at others who were at a training and she said, we're willing to be tortured and even to die if we can complete the mission of Jesus. There was no one at that conference asking things like, isn't it dangerous for us to do this? Our call to build the kingdom of Jesus is greater than any circumstance that you will ever face in your life. Let me tell you what words did not come out of Stephen's mouth when bones were being shattered by the rocks thrown at him. He didn't say something stupid like, well, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. We think if it's risky or unsafe, it must not be God's will. What? The center of God's will may be the absolute most dangerous place to be. Jesus told his disciples, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Jesus didn't die to keep us safe. He died to make us dangerous. Stephen's cause was greater than his circumstances. And while they were stoning him, Stephen looked up and he said, I see the heaven open and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I see the Son of Man. Now we read through that text and we could miss this, but it's huge. You remember, Son of Man is the title that Jesus would singularly use most often to refer to himself throughout the Gospels. No one else ever called Jesus the Son of Man. Only he himself called himself the Son of Man. So when Stephen is about to die, he says, Look, I see the heavens open, and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Why did he use that term? Well, Stephen is referring to Daniel chapter 7. Before me was one like the Son of Man. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Stephen saw the one when the heavens opened who was sovereign over all nations, all authorities, all peoples, all tribes, all languages. And he says, Jesus is not the guy that you assassinated by saying he is the Son of Man, he is the sovereign one who is the master of the universe in charge of all things. It is the only time that Jesus is ever described in the Bible as standing at the right hand of God. All other times, Jesus is described as being seated. You see, Jesus stands for those who live and die with heroic faith. And they make that transition from death to life with boldness and with confidence. Stephen's martyrdom did not make him a hero. His martyrdom only revealed his already heroic faith. So may I ask you, are you often focusing on the circumstances around you? Or are you sold out to the cause of building the kingdom of Jesus? Do you have a rock-solid belief system that enables you to live life to the fullest, and if you die, you would merely count it as gain? Or is your courage quotient quite low because you're focused on the circumstances of your life and not on the cause of your life? Maybe you came back from spring break 
and you're seated here tonight and you are not consumed with a cause because you're consumed with some circumstances right now. Well, what do you do? What can you do? It's a great question. Thank you for asking it. <laughs> and here's the answer. You, you watch Rocky movies Amen. that your parents grew up with. Yeah. This is what you do. I'm consumed with my circumstances. I'm not living for a cause. Watch Rocky movies. I've seen all 273 of them. And they fire me up every time that I see them. There's Rocky V, where he's like too old to fight anymore. So he trains this kid by the name of Tommy Gunn. And Tommy Gunn becomes the heavyweight champion of the world. But here's the story. I'm going to tell you because you don't think you know it. Tommy falls in with some very bad promoters and bad people. And Tommy, who's now the heavyweight champion of the world, comes back and taunts his mentor, Rocky, the guy who made him. And he wants to fight Rocky in the street. He's standing in front of Rocky's house in the movie, Rocky V, and he's saying, come on out here, Rocky Balboa, I want to fight you. Rocky's got his kids, his wife's standing there with him. Come on, let's fight. And Rocky mumbles. Nobody understands what he says because that's the deal. So he mumbles something. And then Tommy starts making fun of Adrian, which is Rocky's wife. And Rocky's like, hey, yo, Tommy, don't make fun of Adrian, you know. And he starts making fun of Rocky's kids. And this is about all he can take. And Rocky doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to fight Tommy Gunn. But he takes off his coat. He comes down into the street. And he says, all right, Tommy, come on, Tommy, let's fight. Tommy is this young, fast, strong guy. And it's left, right, right, left, left, right. And he beats Rocky up and down the street of Philadelphia. And then in one of those famous, very famous, iconic slow motion punches in the movie, boom, he hits Rocky on the chin and his head flies back and the sweat all flies out in the camera angle and he falls back in slow motion into this giant pile of garbage. Here is Rocky, the former heavyweight champion of the world. This guy's mentor and he's beaten to a pulp, lying in a pile of garbage and he can't get up. So he starts to have visions, and he, he sees a vision of Apollo Creed, like in Rocky II. He sees that, and then he sees the time when he beats Mr. T in Rocky III, but he still can't up, and then, and then he, he still can't get up, and then he sees Rocky IV, where he beats this Russian giant, and all of the people in the street are chanting, Rocky, 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 but he still can't get up. He can't get up. He's beaten. He's lying in a pile of garbage. He can't get up. But then he has this vision of his little manager, little guy who died. His name was Mickey. And he has this vision of Mickey saying, Rocky, this is Mickey. Mickey loves you. Get up, you bum. Get up. Mickey loves you. And then the music starts, right? Rocky's pulling banana peels off his arm. <laughs> moving the Mountain Dew cans over. The music's getting louder and louder. And, and he says, yo, Tommy, the fight's not over. And he beats Tommy up and down the street, and Rocky wins. All of the positive thinking in the world couldn't get Rocky up. All of the focus on his past failures or successes couldn't get Rocky up. All the focus on his past accomplishments of being the heavyweight champion of the world could not get Rocky beaten to a pulp out of that pile of garbage. You know what got him up? 
He had a vision of somebody that loved him. I love you. Get up. Get up. And that is what motivated Peter and Paul and Stephen and Hewo and A.J. Milne and Gemini because they saw somebody who loved them and somebody who had come back from the dead. So when you are discouraged and when you feel defeated and when you feel down and when you feel like you don't have a cause and when you're searching out your future, you receive bad news, something catastrophic happens in your family, hear the words of the resurrected Jesus, come on, I love you, get up, get up, get up, I have conquered death, get up, I have overcome the grave, get up, my spirit is within you, be courageous, be strong, I am standing with you. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, thank you that your Holy Spirit has so authored this story for our edification, for our growth. The story of Stephen, your witness, the first martyr of the church, who laid down a life that was already given to you, already surrendered to you. I pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, take this story and help each of us to develop a heroic faith. A faith that rises above our circumstances, a faith that is focused on the cause of building the kingdom of God, a faith that is heroically built in small everyday decisions that are Christ-honoring. Holy Spirit, would you come surround each of us, penetrate through in our hearts and minds, and begin to speak to us of a heroic faith. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. And if you would, just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for a moment. Would you whisper a prayer of surrender? Would you whisper a prayer of confession? Lord, I've been focused on circumstances and not your cause. Would you just ask the Lord to help you develop an outrageously reckless, bold faith in Jesus? Would you just do that for a moment?